The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Taylor Heber. Taylor currently flies the Beechcraft 1900 in some of the most remote areas of Alaska. Prior to aviation, she started out in medical device sales for spinal implants and has since traded her heels and scrubs for extra tufts. Taylor flies for a Part 135 operation where they fuel their own aircraft, load and unload the cargo, and regularly hit 14-hour duty days. She admits it's not always the most glamorous type of flying you can find on social media, that the experience is unlike anything else. She has recently began a blog and Instagram account, Tailored Approach, to showcase this part of the industry and encourage others to consider this type of flying. A real go-getter, Taylor wants to inspire those inside and outside of the aviation industry. She has big plans ahead, and I am so excited to have her joining me today. Welcome, Taylor. Hi, how's it going? It's going great. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm good. Wonderful. So I'll just jump right on in then. How did you get your start in aviation? Yeah, so I actually got started um, when I met my best friend. She's actually a helicopter pilot, and I didn't really know I could be a pilot, I guess you could say, until you know my friends started flying, and I was like, oh, okay, well, I think I could do something like that. So um my, and actually my stepdad was, he's in Alaska, he's been an Alaska Airlines pilot for 30 years and he had a 182. And so he ended up letting me fly his 182 around and learn that way. And actually I was working in medical device sales at the time. So I was like, I'll just work and get my rating so I can help pay for it. And so that's kind of what I did. And then once I was finished. I got offered a really cool job doing the job I'm doing now. So, um, yeah, if it weren't for my best friend and my stepdad lending me his airplane, I don't know if I'd, you know, be in aviation in general, but yeah, really thankful for them for that, for sure. You know, you never really know where the aviation bug is going to come from. And I think it's, it's just the fact that you and your best friend have that in common. I just, I think that's so, so lovely. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And she's way cooler than me and she's flying helicopters and doing really cool things. And so, um, yeah, it's really cool to have people around you that help inspire you to do really awesome things and live up to your potential, I think. so. Being born and raised in Alaska, you also completed your flight training there. What was it like to flight train in Alaska? So I actually... So I did most of my um, flight training in Alaska. I actually did end up doing my IFR rating in California just to get it done quicker. But um, doing it predominantly in Alaska, I think you have to consider that it's easier in the summer um, when there's better weather. So when you do it up in Alaska, it could possibly take you a little bit longer. And when for me, when I was time building... So after I got my, I believe it was my IFR rating. And then I think I was building time to get my commercial. I think that sounds right. Anyway, um, to get the 250 hours, 
flying around Alaska, we would just go fly at night in the wintertime. And I think just kind of going back to what that's like, it really, there's not a ton of when, especially if the moon isn't really out, it is pitch black and there isn't a ton of light from the cities. There's really not cities lighting up the sky. So it can be almost like you're flying in IFR, flying around Alaska and it's cold. And so, you know, there's, there's different things there. And um, I guess that's would be the biggest things I can think of off the top of my head, I guess. Would you be able to explain to me what it means to be a part 135 operator? Yeah, I guess the best way to describe that, and maybe as you can relate to as a Canadian, would be on-demand flights and scheduled charter flights for a 135 operation. And I mean, that's just the biggest difference from part 121, where everything is scheduled. Now, I know we agree that you have a particularly cool job. So could you tell me a little bit more about the day-to-day of your role? I think first off, uh, we, if you look at kind of the schedule and how we operate, um, we have morning flights that can be like 1 or 2 or 3 a.m. And then we have daily flights that happen more in the daytime and then evening flights that could be, you know, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. Um, so a week or two prior to the month starting, we'll bid on a schedule. And so based on your seniority, just kind of like pretty much a lot of airlines, you get to bid on what kind of schedule you want. So right now I have pretty good seniority and I'm able to hold a line where, I mean, right now I have weekends off and I fly during the day um, and I'm home every night. So that's been so awesome. Um, So basically you'll figure out your schedule and once you get called in for a flight, usually, unless you're on like a certain line, you they'll tell you kind of the day of or the night before what you're doing. You want to check in before just to make sure the flight's still going because oftentimes or not, you know, weather or someone still has the plane and they, you know, got delayed or broke down and something happens. So you always want to call an hour before to make sure that you're still good to go. Um, but then once you get there, I think it's, it kind of depends on if you're doing a cargo flight or you're doing a chartered passenger flight. Um, but pretty much for each one, you're going to get to work. You're going to go through four flight. You're going to look at your burns. You're going to look at, you're going to calculate how much fuel you're going to talk to your captain. Um, you want to look at runway conditions and just kind of stuff like that. You'll pre-flight the airplane. Um, the FOs, the first officers will fuel the plane and if cargo needs or if the loaders need help, we'll help them load the airplane with um, with the cargo if we're doing cargo. Um, and if we're doing a passenger flight, we'll actually, you know, obviously your, your attire is going to change too, right? So there's a lot of different factors on the day-to-day role. But um, if we're doing cargo, we'll put on our Carhartts and sweatshirts and extra tufts and head out in uh, most likely smell like fuel. But uh, in, if we're doing a, a passenger flight because of the fueling, we'll or we won't feel because we're in uniform. So we'll taxi over to international and our Ted Stevens international and pick up our passengers and kind of head out. So, um, and as far as where we go, it just kind of depends. Um, for us, we will mainly do, I mean, a lot of our passenger flights are going to Dutch Harbor. That's kind of our bread and butter chartered flights. Um, the other day I did one to the Privilof islands and, um, but we do a lot of Southeast Alaska, so Sitka, Ketchikan, Juneau, um, all those places. And we'll do Kodiak, but um, the North, North Alaska, Bethel, kind of Nome, all that stuff is um, not really where we go. But um, yeah, so that's kind of our day-to-day role, I guess. 
I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm just hearing you say the names of places that I've only ever dreamed of going. And to think that it's just a regular part of your day to day and, and your flying life. I just, I just think that's so cool. Yeah. Oh man. It's so much fun. And they're just, it's so beautiful. What different considerations are there between flying cargo versus flying passengers aside from attire? Yeah, obviously you want to dress for the occasion, right? Um, So I think the biggest considerations, if you want to get technical, obviously there's performance charts, weight limitations. Um, We're going to be more conservative when we're flying passengers um, in how much weight we take and, you know, runway performance. Anyway, all that stuff is, um, will change and be more conservative. But um, generally speaking, we'll try and do our best to consider their comfort. I guess you could say, I know that sounds so cheesy or airliney, but, um, so that might be something, uh, another big thing that our, that is kind of unique about our planes, I guess, in the operation we do is we don't have bathrooms on our plane. So for a lot of these places, um, when we have passengers, and we're going to say Dutch Harbor, that could be, you know, anywhere from three. And I've seen it with the bad headwood. We're almost four hours down the Aleutian chain and with no bathrooms, some of these guys, it gets difficult. So sometimes we might stop in, you know, halfway or nearly halfway in Sandpoint and go get fuel or cold Bay and let them get use the bathroom. And, um, so I don't know. I think those are kind of the main considerations when we're doing cargo versus passengers. Um, Obviously, you try to be really smooth on the controls. You don't want to make them get sick. Um, just kind of stuff like that. I mean, we have all heard the aviation joke that when flying cargo, you have less complaints about your landings. So I can see you wanting to be especially mindful of passenger comfort. Yeah, yeah. Boxes definitely don't complain. What is the biggest misconception people have about cargo pilots? It's hard when you're a cargo pilot and you it, you have to think of it in a different way. But I think most people think that they think of like UPS or FedEx pilots and flying these big, heavy airplanes. And they think they're gone every all the time for weeks on end. They're never home. And for us, um, I know a lot of us want to move on to bigger aircraft after this. But um, and for anyone that doesn't know, I, I fly a, a, what's called a Beach, Beechcraft 1900 and we fly the C model. Um so, I mean, it's relatively a good size airplane, but it's definitely not as big as, you know, a triple seven or something. So, um, but I think the biggest misconception is that to be a cargo pilot, you're not home. And for us, we're home every single night. We're in our own bed and Anchorage and it's absolutely wonderful. Um, so there's that. Uh, I think that um, other people don't maybe understand that we do fuel our own airplanes. We load and unload them. It's a lot of hard work, but you, you get, you get a lot of really cool experiences and you become a better pilot by doing the job we do. So, you know, you kind of just suck it up for the, you know, fueling in negative five or negative 10 degree weather and with winds and whatever. So it's, it's actually not that bad, but, um, and I think another, I guess the other big misconception is, that cargo pilots don't fly passengers. And that's something that we do all the time is we fly chartered passenger flights. So um, it's not always just the boxes for us, I guess. For our non-American listeners, I will clarify that Taylor means minus five Fahrenheit. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. I I forgot about that. Yeah. (laughs) It's yeah. There's that difference. 
what advice would you have for someone considering a flying career in Alaska? Yeah. So flying in Alaska, I think there's a few things to consider, right? So I've actually gotten one of my buddies is getting his writings and he wants to be a bush pilot up here someday. And he's asking me about it. Um, and I think there's kind of two parts, right? So you can look at the training and then you can look at what you would consider when you're flying on the job. Um, and my friend that was asking me some of these questions, he was wondering, you know, for instance, does it matter if I fly steam gauges? Cause the flight school I'm in right now is all glass. And in my opinion, I think it's really good to learn on steam first, especially if you're going to fly in Alaska, they're these planes aren't jets. You're not flying a CRJ for a, a regional airplane or a regional uh, airline. And everything is, for the most part, usually steam gauges in the companies that operate up here, I would say. And I think it's easier to learn on steam and have a good scan and then go to a glass air, airplane um, rather than go glass and then steam. I think it's just usually an easier transition. Um so there's that. I think when you look at your ratings, I don't, I've been asked if it matters if you get your ratings in Alaska. And I don't really think it does. I think you can, as long as you just get it done quickly, it'll save you money. You'll be more proficient. You're not having to relearn things. Um, and if you go down to the lower 48, I don't think it's a big deal. Um, because, and one of the reasons I think that is because when you come up to Alaska, for the most part, no one's going to put you in a single engine out in the bush right off the bat. I just, I think it's unsafe. I don't think any company wants that risk, especially when you come out with 300 hours or, or, you know, something like, like that's what I, that was kind of the situation I had. I 293 hours or something coming to my company. So I think that when you're going from a lower 48 to Alaska, um, I think as long as you get your ratings done pretty quickly, um, you'll be put into a crew environment usually so that you kind of get the lay of the land and you understand what it's like and the things you need to consider flying in Alaska. And I think that's just super crucial um, to being safe and understanding the operation in general. Uh, so there's that. Um, being in a two crew environment is helpful. Um, but I think Alaska is pretty unique as well. So when you're considering flying up here, um, we're kind of old school. So we still have NDBs and some of the radios can be, I know when we go out to places like ADAC, which is past Dutch Harbor, when you go sometimes even to the Privloff Islands, you lose your radio communication and you, you can't contact center and stuff like that, or, you know, get a hold of people. So that can be kind of a weird, eerie situation sometimes for people who aren't used to that. And, um, I mean, eventually you, you figure it out and you know ways around it. Right. But, um, those are things that you need to think about along with the fact that when you are places like along the Aleutian chain or you're on in the Pribilof islands or, you know, in these really rural areas, I think, I, I guess I would assume that if you came from the lower 48, where there's a lot more options for, if you had an emergency, I think when you go out to these rural areas, you don't have a lot of ways out of the situation sometimes. And so if you're low on fuel and your alternates are bad, there's not really many options out of the situation. So I think you've got to keep that in mind and always make sure your plan B and C and D are always going to work out for you um, being kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So lots of considerations, but good things to think about, I would say. Is there a 
particular type of training someone from the lower 48 should work towards um, work towards being proficient on before flying in Alaska? Well, for one, um, it's really interesting because when you when I've flown in the lower 48, every all the cities are lit up, right? And so, you know, you have night flying and then you have IFR flying. I would say a lot of pilots in Alaska consider night flying in Alaska to practically be IFR flying because there's no, you don't have any anything really lit up to understand sometimes where you're at. So, I mean, I think being IFR proficient and stuff like that, and I know that's not always um, how it goes, but um, I think those are good things to think about along with like steam gauges and your training and stuff like that. I, I think uh, those will all help you when you're flying up here and getting mountain time and flying the mountains and stuff and just understanding the you know, considerations that come with that type of flying, you know. A longstanding tradition in aviation is to begin your career in the northern subarctic climates. How has living and working in Alaska changed your life? I always say I don't know who I would be if I didn't live in Alaska. Um, I was exposed to so many different things by living here that I wasn't when I lived in the lower 48 Um I just, I have friends that, that fish and hunt and ski and snow machine. And, uh, so I think that being up here has exposed me to just a a different lifestyle. And I already did a lot of these things, but, um, having the people around me that really influenced me to, like I said, you know, start a career in aviation. I don't know if I would have ever done that unless I was immersed in the things I was with the people I was being in Alaska. Um, I think it's completely changed my life and more in the direction I've gone with my career. And to be honest, I don't think I would have even considered aviation as something I was capable of doing. I just, I'm scared of heights. I, I am not an adrenaline junkie. I the roller coasters can freak me out sometimes, and so I think I just never thought like, oh, fly an airplane—that's totally something you could do. I so I think being up here has changed my perspective on what I can do, and I hope that uh, other girls can kind of see that too. And e- even if you're not from Alaska, just hopefully can be inspired and be like, Oh, okay, I can totally do that. Or I can totally throw all, you know, 20,000 pounds of boxes and fuel an airplane and, you know, fly in Alaska and, um, and do all that stuff. So being up here has really changed my life and, um, for the better. And I, I love the lifestyle up here. It's been pretty cool. Everyone I know who has had the privilege to work in the Canadian North and Alaska talks about how beautiful it is, how friendly the people are. And I think there's just such a way of life up there in the North that for everyone who goes there, they just seem to really and truly just fall in love with it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. It's I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, it it has its pluses and minuses, right? Like it's dark. And sometimes, I mean, as I've gotten older, I realize that being in the dark, it affects you sometimes more than you think it would. You're like, oh, wow, that's, it's not always so great being in the dark, but I'm sure you guys have that a little bit in Canada too. So I, but it's, it's really not bad. And it is, it does have um, really cool things about it. So, but you are far away from things too. So what were some strategies that helped you in your aviation journey? I think first, 
and foremost, um, I'm a big advocate for setting goals. Um, that's just something that um, really matters to me and has helped me a lot in my aviation journey. Um, I think whether it be setting goals that make sure you have enough money to start the aviation ratings or whatever, you know, whatever career you're doing, um, or once you're, I guess, once you're in the training, I think it's important to make sure you keep on track with stuff because it's just, it's so hard. Aviation just requires a lot of dedication and a lot of drive to see it through. And it's a lot of money. So I think if you, if you can get the money and figure out how to do that, setting goals for yourself, like for instance, if you're getting your private pilot's license, you know, dedicate, say to yourself, I'm going to fly three days a week. And if I have a bad weather day, well, at least I flew two of those days. And, um, making sure that you hold yourself accountable to that. Um, I think even for me being in the job I'm in, a captain once told me, she said, pick a chapter a month out of like the POH or flight safety and study that chapter for the month and just read through it and, you know, give yourself time to do that each month and, and uh, set your goals that way so that you keep up with stuff. And so it's not so difficult when you go in for your check ride and, um, you're not trying to cram everything and um, stuff like that. And I think for me, I've set, I would try my best to set hourly goals from the month because obviously any pilot wants to hit the 1500 hours as quick as they can to get, you know, to be eligible for an ATP. So for me, when I first started, I was like, okay, I need a hundred hours every month so that by the first year I'm at the 1500. And so goal setting was just a big part of my, you know, aviation journey. So that was super helpful. But I do think with, you know, another part of that for me was networking. That's just been just immensely helpful to get the job I have, I have right now. Um, you know, whether it's getting interview prep and talking anyone that would pretty much the way I went about it was anyone who would give you the time of day. I would ask them questions. Anyone who is a pilot that would sit in the simulator with me, anyone who had an IFR rating, I'd be like, would you want to come to the simulator with me and just like, tell me what I'm doing wrong or like, let's look over things and let's look over, do some approaches with these, you know, crazy approaches into Kodiak and Dutch Harbor. Um, anyone who would introduce me to someone, uh, I, I just think that that was really, really helpful when it came to getting the job. Um, so, you know, not only setting goals, networking is important, but um, on the blog that I have, uh, I spoke, I wrote something about, you know, the things, if I would have known them a year ago, looking back on the job, would I, you know, what would be the things that would be really good to know coming into it? Basically, to try to keep it as simple as possible, I think, you know, try and be, be humble as you can. You know, you have so many pilots that sometimes can think they're God's gift to aviation and you be a good pilot, but be humble about it too. Um, having a good attitude is important. And, you know, when you're, I always say, try to be a chameleon in the cockpit. Like if a captain's pretty likes to be kind of quiet or, you know, they like to run their cockpit a certain way, just kind of go with it. And uh, I mean, obviously as long as it's not a safety concern, just try to, um, you know, get along with different people. Um, but just be a, be a really good freaking pilot, you know, that, that I don't think is, that I think is just, I don't know, maybe that's just like too easy to say, but I think as long as you're keeping up and you're studying and you're 
doing your job and being good at your job and um, asking at the end of a flight, hey, what did you think I did wrong here? Like, do you think I should, what do you think I should improve on? Even on in a company, I think that's really, really helpful. And it shows the captains that you take this seriously, that you want to get better and you want to do really good and excel at what you're doing. Um, and I think it can earn you a lot of respect in the job you're doing and it can make you better in general. And, um, and it'll help out a lot in, in your goals, I would say. I think just even being open to constructive criticism and feedback, that on its own is something that will set you apart from other people. Um, and it's a particularly big part of networking, especially if you can incorporate that into your day-to-day flying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a part of, you know, being humble, being teachable. Um, you know, everyone, everyone as a pilot messes up and, you know, has their bad days and their bad landings and um, just trying to learn from them as best you can. It's just so crucial to aviation in general, which, which is why I love it. You know, you can always you can always be better and work on yourself and all of that. So, what is the part of your job you find the most rewarding? Well, obviously, Alaska is beautiful. So that in and of itself is absolutely awesome. I think even being living in Alaska as long as I have, I still, I would have never been able to see the things that I've gotten to see if I didn't fly and, um, fly here in Alaska. So it's just, it's so beautiful. It's big. And, um, it's just to be able to explore all the places around here has just been such a blessing. Um, so, I mean, but not only the places, I think the people have been just so cool. I just, I feel like I just get to fly with my friends every day. And that part is just so much fun. And, um, everyone is, uh, has just become like such a good friend to me. And, and it's the people have been probably really cool just to learn from them. The coolest conversations you get to have with just so many people with very different backgrounds. Um, it's just been incredible. So I'd say not only like how beautiful Alaska is, but the people have been pretty rewarding and um, a blessing to the job for sure. Now you mentioned your blog, Tailored Approach. How did you decide to start your blog? Yes. So I followed a lot. I've obviously followed a ton of awesome, cool people on Instagram and social media that are amazing pilots and totally badass if I'm allowed to say that. Um, but they're just really cool. I, but I hadn't seen a ton of cargo pilots. Um, I see lots of people in uniforms and, you know, doing, you know, general aviation stuff, but I hadn't seen a lot of cargo pilots. And so, and that were female that, you know, do this job. So I kind of just wanted to shine light on what it was like to work as a cargo pilot and being a woman in aviation and a woman in Alaska flying cargo and kind of what that entails and hopefully to inspire other women and girls, especially not, I mean, everyone, but also women too, that, you know, you can be a girly girl, do all the things and you can also feel your own airplane and, you know, chuck 5,000 pounds of freight out the back of the plane, you know? And, um, so that was kind of why I wanted to start it. And, yeah, basically just shed some light on how cool this job is and that you can basic that you can start your career and you don't always have to do it a certain way because everyone everyone that gets into aviation is on a different path and they, everyone has their own way of doing things and their own connections and their own different types of airplanes or lack thereof and and I think 
it doesn't have to be just one way. And I think for me, this would work perfectly. I got my ratings and I was able to get a job. I don't even know how, but I'm very thankful I was able to get the job I had with such little hours. Um, but I didn't know about this. I didn't know that this was even an opportunity that I could have. And I think that it would be cool to show other people that you can do this. You don't have to just get your ratings and be a CFI and go to regional. And there's no problem with that. That is an awesome way to go as well. Um, but for me, this was just, this was just what worked best for me. And um, hopefully I can show people that this is an option maybe for them too, if they, they so choose. So. I think it's really admirable that once you found yourself established in your role flying cargo, you not only wanted to showcase it and promote it to more pilots, but it was something that you wanted to promote, especially to just women and girls. I, I think that says a lot about you uh, when it comes to sort of your focus on promoting gender diversity within the cargo sector. I, I think it's a very genuine and cool way to try and promote a non-traditional job. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Who is someone in aviation you admire and why? Wow. There are just so many people, right? Uh, I have so many people that have just influenced me along the way and have just helped my career so much. And as just a pilot in general. Um, but I think the person I admire most would be, uh, he's my flight instructor. He taught me how to fly and um, his name was Colt. And he was just, such a humble person, but so incredibly smart and kind and just did everything he did so well, um, with so much grace and, um, not to be a, not to be too, uh, Debbie Downer, but he actually passed away in a, um, in a float plane accident. And, um, but he was someone that I admired very much and he taught me, he taught me how to fly and, um, I'll forever be grateful for that. So, that that is a reality of being in aviation. Um, it happens sometimes that we know someone or or fly with them, then something happens and they're not with us anymore. Um, it can definitely be challenging not to have that direct influence and role model anymore. But the lessons they teach you, directly and indirectly, they stay with you forever. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, I will be honest. I mean, a part of me didn't know if I would go back into flying. Cause this happened, you know, pretty much right after I got my private pilot's license. And I didn't know if I would, I was like, man, this guy is so smart and he is such a good pilot. Like, I don't even know if I should be doing what I'm doing. Right. And, um, I realized like, I don't think he would want that. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty tragic. I mean, he was just, he just got accepted into medical school. He was, you know, flying a 121 and he just had a lot of opportunity and um, it was sad to see him go, but I was truly just so blessed and thankful, very thankful to have had him in my life to just teach me how to fly. So, yeah. He sounds like he was an incredible pilot and instructor. Yes. What is your ultimate aviation career goal? I think obviously, like we talked about having goals is super important. Um, I think first off, I would love to upgrade and get my ATP rating with my company and become a captain and start making some, some decisions and get practice doing that. Uh, so I think to upgrade in, in the short term, hopefully to upgrade 
and be given an opportunity to do that and be a captain would be absolutely amazing. Um, Long-term, with COVID, I've really debated where I wanted to go with my career a lot. I, I was like, well, seeing how many pilots were furloughed, I, I definitely questioned if long-term I wanted to go into a role in aviation where I was flying for a passenger airline like Delta, American, Alaska Airlines, all those things, just because when you talk to other people that either go cargo or passenger, um, obviously people like them for different reasons. And, you know, you can say with passengers that someone might you know, that you could be furloughed a lot easier because of stuff like a pandemic, a terrorist attack, you know, crazy, whatever, economically that's happening. But a lot of people will say it's equally as scary for cargo pilots, which I don't think this will happen in our lifetime. I'm not sure, though. But for the cargo pilots to not have a job anymore, just because it can they'll get planes that fly themselves. So I think that there's there's not always zero risk in anything you do. And for me, it's about doing what I love and also being able to have the, a good lifestyle. And, um, I, I do eventually want to have a family and be able to have that as well. So I'm hoping to have a career that allows me to kind of do both. So part of what your dream job in aviation would be, would have a healthy and positive work-life balance and also the ability to be a primary caregiver to any children that you may have. Um, aviation can sometimes be a bit of a challenge when it comes to work-life balance and relationships. Uh, so what are your thoughts when it comes to being a parent in aviation? So my boyfriend, he's a pilot as well, and he actually works two weeks on and two weeks off. So he is gone and it is, it can be hard. Um, but I think, I think the biggest thing is if you are in a, in a healthy relationship, you've got to have trust, especially when they're gone for long periods of time, especially if you had a partner that was working overseas. And um, there's a lot of stigmas behind pilots and relationships. And a lot of people could see it being harder for two pilots to be in a relationship and have a family and um, raise kids. But I think it's important. I think more and more companies are understanding that women want to be able to have children and even men want to be there for their families and their kids and they need that work-life balance too. And I think um, more and more people are understanding that and are able to accommodate that from what I've seen. Um, So up until now, we haven't, I mean, we don't have kids, so it's not, it's not too bad for us, but I know tons of pilots that do it together and um, can work with their schedules, especially as they get more senior in different jobs and, um, I know tons of kids that were raised by pilots that absolutely had phenomenal relationships with their parents. And I think it's definitely doable. And I think that's important for a, a woman to realize in aviation that they can still be a great mom and a great dad and be pilots. And, you know, I've been asked that I've, you know, I've, I've had different people say, well, do you think you can be a good mom if you choose to go down that career? I mean, are you going to be able to be there for your kids? And kind of question that. And um, although I haven't done it yet, and I don't know, I mean, I hope I'll be a good mom, right? But um, I think I'm going to do my best to make sure I I do it well and um, have some sort of balance and, you know, choose a company that can allow me to have a life and be there for my kids and also have the career I've always dreamed of too. So I think it's definitely doable. 
Now, would you please share with me a favorite aviation highlight? Yes. Um, And this kind of goes back to my private pilot. Um, One of the coolest things that happened was, so we were, I was, you know, still, I think I had just gotten my private pilot's license and, but I wasn't able to fly at night because I had done it in the summertime. And so I was going to do a night cross country in this, you know, little low wing sundowner. Um, We were doing a night cross country from Anchorage, basically like hood to Homer. And it was in the middle of the night. And I just remember it was the first time I had ever flown in the Northern lights. And it was just one of the coolest experiences and one of my favorite memories flying with my, my flight instructor, Cole, and just seeing the Northern lights and um, flying in them for the first time. I was just like, wow, Alaska is really such a cool place. And it was just, yeah, it was an awesome experience and one that I'll remember, remember forever for sure. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? So I have an Instagram account called Tailored Approach, and I have a blog, tailoredapproach.com. And you can also find me on Facebook as well at Tailored Approach. We will be sure to include those links in the episode description for our listeners. Taylor Heber, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Laura. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searles. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.